is Caleb, and I have the privilege of serving on the worship team here at Reality, and today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 2, 1 through 10, from the NIV. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, and not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. This is God's Word. Thank you, Caleb. Our title for this study through the New Testament book of Titus is called A Faithful Presence, and we're exploring what it means and what it looks like to be a faithful representative of Jesus in different spheres of life, from the most intimate space in the home to the gathered space of the church all the way through, and what our text speaks of here, our influence in the world. Let's pray together and let's invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning and transform us as we learn. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that every aspect of our lives matters to you. And as we explore the, the theme of, of work and our witness in the workspace and out in the public square, you care deeply about how we conduct ourselves, how we behave. And so this morning, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak into these areas, speak to us about our character, speak to us about our integrity. Speak to us about the example that we have and the impact that we leave upon other people. Where we need correction, we ask that you would correct us. Where we need encouragement, we ask that you would encourage us. And above all, that we would learn to treasure Jesus more. And that as a result, we would show him off to the watching world. I pray for anyone here who does not yet know the love of Jesus, that today they would understand the gospel, believe, and be saved. Spirit of God, would you speak to us, transform us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Long before he became king, Prince Charles called for a press photo shoot at a Swiss ski resort, as you would, in 2005, marking his imminent wedding to Camilla Parker Bowles. During the photo shoot, Charles could not hide his true feelings in what he thought were private, casual words. 
I hate doing this and I hate these people, he said. And when interviewed by the BBC correspondent, he turned to one of his sons and said, I cannot bear that man. He is so awful. He really is. The problem, of course, was that his microphone was on the entire time, picking up every single idle word. The British public was watching and, of course, was none too pleased. We call this a hot mic story. <laughs> I've had some of my own. <laughs> Tell you about it after church. The lesson, of course, is for us all to conduct ourselves knowing that people are listening and watching our lives, especially when we hold a role or a position in our place of work or responsibility to the public. And so we must give attention to the way that we conduct ourselves because, friends, whether you realize it or not, the microphone is always on. This is the general idea, of course, behind the Apostle Paul's instructions in his letter to a church leader in the first century called Titus. Paul's overarching theme is that the followers of Jesus are to be a faithful presence wherever they are. Last week, Dom walked us through what it means to be a faithful presence within the church, leaving a good impact amongst the community of the church, and to think through the impact that we have on one another. But in verses 9 and 10, he turns a corner, as he will later on in the letter, and focuses on a different sphere of influence, the watching world specifically the place of labor, the place of work, the place of employment within the world. And as we study this passage, we must all ask ourselves, what message does my life convey, particularly in my place of work? And if you're not at work right now, for whatever reason, you know someone who does. You're raising children who do. You have adult children who have work. We're all responsible to know these truths and to ask, what kind of impact does my presence make? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it just neutral? Is it distinct? And it is important that we ask these questions because the average person will spend 90,000 hours of their lifetime in a place of work. The question is, is your presence a witness? Now, before we attempt to lay out the application, we must first address the language of slaves and masters. For when we read these words, we immediately think of race-based chattel slavery that we had in our own history in which the slave is the property of the master and lacks any legal rights. This kind of slavery is manifestly amongst the most evil institutions ever to exist in history. And tragically, there have been those who have sought to support this evil 
by using the Bible and passages like this in an attempt to justify what we've seen in North American slavery. But this is a mishandling of the Bible. Tim Keller, who wrote a best-selling book called The Reason for God, writes addressing common objections to Christianity. And one of the chapters is on injustice in which he addresses slavery. And he says this, this is a classic case regarding texts like this of ignoring the cultural and historical distance between us and the writer and readers of the original text. In the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 or 15 years or by their late 30s at the latest. So for some of us, we, we come to these pages of Scripture, we see those words, we think, what? Or maybe you're new to Christian faith, or you're encountering the Bible for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh, how, what do I even do with, with a book like this? Because many of us are thinking of our own nation's history. But we need to know that the African slave trade was based on race and operated through kidnapping, violence, and trafficking, all of which is clearly condemned in the Bible. So it is important for us to know that none of that is being endorsed here in Titus chapter 2. So what was going on with slaves and masters back then? Why did it even exist? Well, in ancient times, there was no formalized bankruptcy. And so becoming a slave or a bond servant, as some translations put it, like the ESV, it was a form of chapter 11. It was voluntary, which is key to note, often due to debt or poverty, not the result of kidnapping, trafficking, or race. This kind of bondservant or slave helped the poor survive or pay off their debt. It's also important to note that this ancient slavery did not include the whole person. It was their productivity that was under the master's control, their time and their talent. So in summary, when we read in the New Testament verses about slaves or servants and masters, we have to look at it, what's being said through the lens of the culture at that point in history. And with these clarifications in mind, a general application we would have today would be the place of employment, where we are hired by and therefore accountable and responsible to an employer. And so you're in the workplace, you're employed, there's responsibilities that you have, you no doubt have supervisors, employers, bosses, overseers over you. And you ask the question, how would God have me work? How should I work? How should I view my work? 
The principles that Paul lays down for the bondservant in the first century can be applied in many ways to the modern worker today. And Paul wants us to know that the presence of a Christian in these situations is to be a faithful presence, which entails three things, where we work, how we work, and why we work. The first lesson is this, where we work matters. Where you work absolutely matters. As we've learned so far in this series, Paul's instruction to the follower of Jesus does not call for them to remove themselves from the culture, but to live faithfully within the culture. And so he says in verse 9 and 10, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. I want to point out that Paul assumes, as he does in many other places, that our work, our employment, will take place in the world. Paul's not writing the New Testament imagining that most Christians throughout history are all going to have Christian jobs. That's not his assumption. But rather that we will all work in a place, in a culture that does not share the same values. Paul assumes that here specifically, these bond servants are given very specific instructions in the way in which they conduct themselves pertaining to the master or their property, whatever it is that they are responsible for. But Paul does not think in doing so that he's endorsing the values or even the faith or lack thereof of the master. And when he says be subject to, the meaning in the Greek, as we learned last week, means the arranging of one's gifts under the purposes of those with a proper authority. And here it is in the context of labor. But note that it is not an absolute authority. So when Paul says in everything, be subject to the master in everything, he means everything that pertains to your responsibility. Where we work matters. Now this might be an obvious point to make, but it is a very important one because Many people, even Christians, often view work in one of two ways. On the one hand, there are some who dismiss work as a necessary evil. This is true of many Christians. Well, I just work in order to pay the bills. Some of you are like, well, I can barely even pay those bills right now. <laughs> it's a necessary evil. I just live for the weekend. Like, I just check out mentally. I go do my job Monday through Friday, do something fun on the weekend, maybe worship, you know, with the church on a Sunday. It's a necessary evil. I've known many in the church who view work very much like that. Well, thankfully I get a paycheck. I can, you know, take care of my family and I can maybe tithe to the church, but that's pretty much all the value that my work has. So on the one hand, one extreme is that work is dismissed as a necessary evil. But on the other hand, and to another extreme, there are many for whom work is deified as a source of identity. 
So some people, it's dismissed as a necessary evil. But on the other hand, it's deified as a source of identity. For many people, and I've seen this in the church, work is everything. Work is where you get your sense of value and meaning and purpose. Your career is everything. What's on your CV, your resume is like the source of who you are. I watched a documentary recently on a very famous uh, journalist in America, and she had this one line when being interviewed. She said, if I see an empty calendar, I don't know who I am. If my calendar is not filled, I don't even know who I am. Like, what am I even doing with my life? And there are many, even Christians, for whom their career is their idol. They look to their career to give them meaning and value and significance and direction in life. Those are two extremes. But it's important to note that neither view is actually faithful to the Bible. According to Scripture, work is not to be dismissed, nor is it to be deified. It is to be redefined in light of God's Word. And Titus chapter 2 is one of those examples. Our presence in the workplace matters. And again, it is assumed that we will work in a culture that does not share the same values that you do. After all, Paul will refer to other believers, other Christians, who even worked in Caesar's household in the first century. But in no way is that an endorsement of Caesar's values and beliefs. It's an important point because a lot of Christians just think, well, since they don't share my values, it's of no significance, so I'm just going to check out during the week, and I'm not going to place much of a value on how I live in the place that I work. And yet so much of the Bible is about this, for lack of better words, ordinary place of work. Let me give you a, an example from the author John Ortberg in his book on identity. He says this, most of the heroes in the Bible had what we would think of as secular vocations. Isaac developed real estate. Jacob was a rancher. And Joseph was a government official. He was in charge of agriculture, the economy, and immigration policy, who served a pharaoh in a foreign land that did not honor Israel's God. Joseph did not decide he could serve God best by leaving his well-paying government job and starting a nonprofit, faith-based organization to do charity work. Dramatic pause. Moses spent 40 years as a sheep herder, and David worked in shepherding the military and statecraft. Daniel was an immigrant who attended Babylon's version of Oxford and became prime minister. Lydia was a successful businesswoman in textiles. Paul was a tent maker. And perhaps the ultimate expression of how much God values work is Jesus was a carpenter. The Bible is a book written by workers, about workers, for workers, but too often in discussion about spiritual life, our work gets ignored. Where you work matters. It is assumed that you will work in the world, in a culture that does not share your values. And so Paul gives specific instructions. Now, the immediate question for many of us, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, wait a minute, there's a tension there. Where do I draw the line? Okay, I understand that my place of work is going to be most likely in a place that is not explicitly Christian. I get it, but where do I draw the line? Well, let me give you a very simple principle 
that needs to be worked out in your own life. And it's the same principle that applies to how you relate to the government and paying your taxes that Paul will talk about later and we're actually going to address again when we get into Titus chapter 3. Where do I draw the line? Well, to put it simply, you draw the line when your work commands what God forbids or when your work forbids what God commands. The same is true of, of government. The same is true of paying your, your taxes. When do I, where do I draw the line with the government? Well, when the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. It's a simple principle, but one that you need to work out on a daily and weekly basis. Otherwise, we lose our distinct witness. And that leads to the second point. Not only does our place of work matter, that it matters that we work out in the world, but how we work matters. And so in addressing how the, the bondservant conducts themselves, Paul, without endorsing the, the master or that particular situation, what Paul has in mind is the character of this person. And that we are all to pursue certain things and avoid others when it comes to our presence in the workplace. Instructions that we would all do well to take to heart if we are going to be a faithful presence in the place where we spend many hours of our week. So he says at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, Try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. The big idea is that Paul's instructions are meant to muzzle the critic who might say that a follower of Jesus is all about anarchy and doesn't care about responsibility or authority at all. And so he gives his specific instructions. The first is try to please them, which speaks of a, a job well done, satisfactory effort in your work. There may have been, and there often is a temptation today for a follower of Jesus to say, well, this is just a secular place of vocation, so it doesn't even matter. I'm just working for the man, so it doesn't even matter how I live. I'm just going to show up, clock in, get the bare minimum done, and then head home for the week. Paul says that's not how you are to approach your responsibilities. I do wonder at times, would this characterize some of us? We justify the behavior saying, well, this place of work, it's, you know, I don't fully agree with or identify with every particular aspect of it. Therefore, I'm not going to do a good job. Paul says that's a wrong conclusion. We are not to engage in a half-hearted or careless way when it comes to our work. Lazy workers will not be pleasing to an employer. So to put it simply, do good work. Whatever job you have, may it be a good effort that you put into it. Those are Paul's instructions. It's so practical. It's so down to earth. And yet it's so easy to miss. Paul says, hey, do you have a job? then work hard. Work hard at your job. 
And secondly, when it comes to people that you might often find yourself disagreeing with, he says, don't talk back. When there's a proper authority, you need to be very careful as to how you use your words. Regardless of how common it might be to respond to a boss or a supervisor or a colleague or a coworker with a surly remark or a bitter complaint, this should not mark the Christian worker. Instead, he encourages the laborer to be polite and respectful in communication. I would add that gossip, slander, and mean-spirited comments are also forbidden. Now, please don't misunderstand this teaching. This does not mean that you are a doormat and you should never address any kind of injustice in the workplace. That's not what Paul is talking about here. You are not a doormat. In fact, there are and will be times where you need to address an injustice or an abuse in the workplace. But when you do, do so with respect. This doesn't mean that there's never going to be a problem in the workplace. What Paul is forbidding here is that kind of casual complaint or argumentative spirit. Paul himself knows this well. If you read through the book of Acts, which records for us the earliest history of the church, in which Paul was an apostle and he was often falsely accused and arrested by the government under false charges, Paul still openly disagreed, but he did so in a way that was respectful. There is a respectful way to address when things are wrong in the workplace. But what Paul is forbidding here is this mean-spirited, casual way in which we can be argumentative or slanderous. I certainly know this from my former days in the workplace before I was a Christian. It was so common. It was part of the culture that you would just absolutely trash your boss and say all kinds of things about them. Paul says this should not be so amongst the follower of Jesus in this place of work. God not only calls us to do our work well, but to do so in the right spirit and with a good attitude, which then moves them on to ethics. He also encourages them to be honest and have integrity in their work. The commentators tell us that it may have been a common temptation as a bondservant responsible for their master's possession or their land or even their household to find opportunities to steal, which would also apply to embezzlement or even fraud. There's a common temptation today for many workers when there's an opportunity to just skim a little off the top. Maybe that's something that's common in your particular profession or field of work. And you're like, well, everyone does it. We just pocket this money. We just take that. We don't report this. And because everyone else does it, you're like, well, I'm just going to go with the flow. Paul says it should not be so amongst the follower of Jesus. We shouldn't do that or justify it just because that's the way that others do it. In contrast, live in a way that you are 
visibly trustworthy and reliable. It's a powerful encouragement here. He says at the end of, or the beginning of verse 10, show that they can be fully trusted. Work in such a way that you can be fully trusted. See, this integrity is so important to our Christian witness. See, there are a lot of people who think I can only be, you know, an impact if I get to explicitly share the gospel. And we would all hope and pray for an opportunity to do so. But we're not always going to have that opportunity, perhaps not publicly. But we need to demonstrate with our lives that we are faithful in practical matters so that when we get the opportunity to speak, we can be proven to be faithful when we speak on spiritual matters. That's why character and integrity in the workplace is so important. Listen, most of us, we don't know when we're going to get that opportunity to share about what we really believe. But let me tell you this, you don't want to live and work in such a way at your job that three years into it, your workplace finds out you're a Christian and they're absolutely dumbfounded. Right? That's bad. How tragic would it be if you work in, in your job for years and all of a sudden one day someone's like, hey, we got this thing on the weekend on Sunday. Do you want to come? Oh, no, I can't come. I go to church. And they're like, they spit out their coffee. What? You go to church? You're a Christian. I never would have guessed. I never would have known that you of all people would be a follower of Jesus. Okay, friends, we do not aspire for that reaction. Can I get an amen? We don't want that. <laughs> but in contrast, you're living in such a way that you are trustworthy. The way in which you conduct yourself is like a signpost pointing towards something greater, establishing credibility so that when you are asked and when you have the opportunity, you can point to Jesus. Now, as I think about this, I can't help but to think about my own life, and I contrast my time as, as a worker before I was a Christian, and then my time working after I was a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I just went with the flow. Whatever was a part of the work culture, I fully engaged. There was no distinction at all whatsoever, even though there were certain things that I knowingly did was wrong because everyone else was doing it. I just did what they were doing. Fast forward a little bit. When I was a new Christian, I remember going to work and, you know, I was like so excited to like read and learn the Bible and people at work started asking me questions and I would like give them answers based on what I was reading. And no joke, this one person said to me, you're so wise. And I was like, no one has ever said that to me ever in my life. Here I am, I'm like 21, you're so wise. Like that doesn't happen to a 21 year old on average. And I said, oh, I think you're thinking that because what I'm telling you comes from the book of Proverbs, which is in the Bible. And it's all about wisdom. Can I tell you about that? It was such a contrast. And though our witness will oftentimes be imperfect, nevertheless, we endeavor to live trustworthy and reliable in our place of work. 
one of the great biblical examples of this, of course, is the story of Joseph in the first book of the Bible, though unjustly sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph was a servant in the house of an Egyptian official, and he worked with such integrity that his master, Potiphar, put him in charge of everything. Reliable, trustworthy. Paul's attention is on character and integrity when he thinks about the place of work in a culture that's not ideal. And I think this is particularly important in our culture in North America because we tend to value talent over character. Many people think they're only going to have an impact as a Christian in the workplace if they're particularly talented. And oftentimes as the church, we hold up people who are really talented as the people who can be the greatest witness for Christ in the culture. And though that's good, that's not the whole story, is it? You don't read the New Testament and come across any verse that gives you the impression that, hey, go do your job and whatever, but if you're really talented, then you could be a witness for Christ. If that was the case, it would be sad because then it would be left to this very exclusive, elite crew of Christians that were going to have the greatest impact. But instead, the Bible addresses character and integrity, and all of us can show character and integrity, and therefore all of us have the potential of being a faithful witness for Christ in any place of work. And that is encouraging. Because you know what that means? For every one of us, it doesn't matter whether you're on the lowest rung of the corporate ladder or if you're the supervisor themselves, we should show ourselves to have good character. And as we do, we become a signpost towards something greater. Your character in the workplace matters. And I wonder this morning, for those of you, whether you're you have a full-time job, a part-time, maybe you're a student, maybe you're a, an employer or a supervisor, maybe you're retired, but you have a responsibility and a role within the public square. People are watching you. The microphone is on. The question we must ask, is my witness a good one? Are there any character issues that Jesus wants to address in my life? Are there any little compromises that I've made because, well, after all, that's how things are done around here? Have you made personal compromises? Is there a gap between how you behave in the home and on the weekend at church and then in the workplace, you're, you're just like with the crowd? Have you lost your distinct witness? Or have you forgotten the impact that you can make because of a Christian witness? These are questions we must take to heart where you work matters. It's assumed that you're going to be out in the world, in a culture that does not share your values or your faith, and your presence there matters. You are on mission for Christ, and therefore how you work matters. Show yourself to be reliable and trustworthy and not just go with the flow in gossip and in slander and mean-spirited speech or practices that don't have integrity. But all of this leads to a why. 
And I want us to notice that Paul concludes his instruction by getting to the heart and motivation of our work. Where we work matters, how we work matters, and third, why we work matters. And here at the end, Paul beautifully reminds us of what is at stake. He says at the end of verse 10, do all this so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Or as some translations put it, we will adorn the doctrine of God. And I love that phrase and I love that word in particular, adorn or to make attractive because it reflects the meaning of the original Greek word, which is where we often get our English word cosmetics, interestingly enough. All that stuff that people use to put on themselves to highlight their features. And even though cosmetics usually gives us the idea of something you might put on your, your face, the root idea of the term is that of arranging something in order to give it symmetry or beauty. So in ancient times, this word cosmetics was also used of arranging jewels in a crown or a necklace or a ring in such a way that best displays the beauty of the gem. And in that, I admire the craft of jewelry making. I'll never forget when we, when we lived in London, we took my kids to the Tower of London, in which, of course, are held the crown jewels. And you go through this whole display as you're waiting to see the crown jewels. It goes through the history, and then finally, this anticipation builds, and you're going to go into the highly guarded room where the crown jewels are stored. And the whole room is designed in such a way that draws your eye and attention to the jewels themselves. In fact, you're walking through the whole part of the, the Tower of London until you get to this room, and then you get on a conveyor belt, which is anticlimactically slow, I might add, just in case you ever visit. You're like, oh, I'm getting there. You get on the conveyor belt. It's like, nah. and you're like, I could just walk. <laughs> But it's, maybe it's meant to dramatically slow you down so that as you pass, you take in the beauty. And what stands out is that the crown itself is designed in such a way to highlight the beauty of these remarkably valuable gems. Friends, the application is clear. We are to order our lives with care and attention, not to draw affection for ourselves, but attention to the one jewel that matters, Jesus Christ. We don't live in such a way to, to gain the praise of people. We don't live reliable, trustworthy lives just to get a compliment. So that people in your workplace say, wow, you are so faithful. And you're like, thanks. You're so wise. I know. On that day when my coworker told me, you're so wise. I didn't say, well, you know, it's just who I am, really. Just the talent I have, you know. All those personality tests I take, wise. 
No, it points towards something else. When you work in such a way that is faithful and the people around you that you work with say, man, you're, you're like really faithful. You say, well, it's because I know a faithful God. It's because I, I have a savior who is faithful to me. Listen, you arranged your time, you arrange your effort in such a way as to show off the beauty of what you love most. See, people do this in our culture all the time. We arrange our lives in such a way as to draw attention to what we love most. That's the idea behind this word adorn, right? That we can't help but be public about the things that, that, that we love. The way that we decorate our homes often draws attention to the things that, that we love. I think of a silly example of a, a bumper sticker. I've, I've been noticing them more recently, and usually a bumper sticker is an indication of something that you're like really passionate about, right? The other day I was behind all these Trojan mom, Trojan dads, like my daughter went to USC and don't you forget it. I love them and I love USC. And you're like, well, we know where we stand. Or maybe you're a, a Bruin. You're like, my daughter, the Bruin, would never be a Trojan, ever. You're proud of that. So you put the sticker on your car. Like, we all arrange our lives in such a way as to draw attention to what we love most. And Paul's instruction here, friends, is when you think about your place of work, when you think about your place in the public sphere, arrange your lives, give thought and attention to the way that you order yourself and conduct yourself to display the beauty of God's truth. What makes the church and Christians attractive and influential in the world is when we are living in such a way that we point to Jesus Christ. We must allow the glorious truth of the gospel to come out and to shine forth in every aspect of our lives. This kind of living highlights the attractiveness of the gospel. That's why what you do in your work matters. It's an opportunity to highlight the attractiveness of Christ. And this is particularly key when we think about one of the most common complaints about Christians and that that is Christians are hypocrites. They do not practice what they preach. It's all do as I say, not as I do. Your best answer to those accusations against Christianity is living a life of integrity that points to Christ. So in short, we are to be both a verbal and visible witness for Jesus. And I love how the apostle Peter puts it in his first letter. He says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Living in the way that Paul describes here will inevitably raise questions. Why do you work this way? And the answer is, well, it's all because of the work of Jesus. The best way to show that the gospel is attractive to others is when the gospel is first attractive to us. 
when the work of Christ has captured our own hearts. Because we must never forget, when we struggle with our work, we must remember that we are saved by Jesus' work. He came into this world as a worker, a carpenter for three quarters of his life, which highlights the dignity of what we might call ordinary work. But more important than that, his ultimate work was to provide salvation for us through the work of his perfect life, his sacrificial death on a cross for my sin and for your sin and for the sins of the world, his work of rising again so that we might be freed from the guilt of sin and saved. If you turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work, then you are saved forgiven of sin, accepted by God, and now free to enjoy work as God intended, which is an act of worship. So friends, in order to experience this meaningful view of work, you don't necessarily need a new job, but you do need a new boss, and his name is Jesus. And he's the best boss you could ever have. He's the boss with all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet the one who used his authority on your behalf. He laid down his life as a servant. He humbled himself and became a servant and sacrificed his life to save you. And today continues his work on your behalf. Jesus is risen, and he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you right now. He's still working for you. Because he loves you. And it is when you receive his work for you that it brings new meaning as you work for others. So here's a gospel work ethic that we can remember as we transition now into worship. Seek things which are above. Your value and your identity is in Christ. Not in the work that you do, but in the work that Christ has done for you. Store up treasure in heaven. Remember that, yes, this job is a temporary opportunity, but it's one in which you can make an eternal investment. The people around you matter to God. And third, serve with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Work is an aspect of worship. And with that comes in a new enjoyment. So friends, are you frustrated with the people you work with? Remember that those are people that Jesus loves and wants to save. Have you forgotten the importance of your presence in the workplace today? Let this text be an encouragement to you. Are there character issues that God wants to address and transform in your life? Let him address those. For some of us, you've just forgotten why it all matters. Be enthralled with the beauty of Christ today. The gospel will be made attractive to others through your life as the gospel is attractive to your life. So let's be enthralled with Jesus. May he be that beautiful gem at the center around which we order and arrange our lives. Let's pray that that would be so. Father, I pray for us. I pray first that we would see you as infinitely valuable that we would see you as the true treasure worth arranging our lives around. Father, I pray that as we have this strategic time of worship and prayer and communion and response, that you would stir up our affection for you, that we would see that you are 
infinitely more valuable than we can imagine. Remembering all that you've done for us and the great love that you've shown toward us. I pray that we would treasure you now, God. And I pray that as a result, you would change us, that you would address any character issues that need to be addressed, that you'd remind us that the people that we work for and with and around absolutely matter to you. So Holy Spirit, would you move now as we respond? And for anyone who does not yet know you, I pray that right now they would put their faith and their trust in you knowing that no amount of work can save them on their part. Only the work of Christ can save them. May they trust in you right now for salvation and be saved. Spirit, move. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.